5 to 18. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." So far, our reading of Scripture. And so, once again, with the incarnation of Christ in mind, uh, let's sing about God's wonderful salvation and drawing near to save us the two more stanzas of Psalm 71, stanzas 6 and 8.
In our second services, we continue to work through uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, confession, summarizing the teaching of Scripture. Today we come to Lord's Day 14. Lord's Day 14. What do you confess when you say, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. This is our confession based on God's perfect and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've ever heard of the show Dragon's Den. I remember very fondly sometimes in my business classes in high school, our, our teacher, I guess when he didn't have other things planned for the rest of class, he would pull up some episodes of Dragon's Den where investors and entrepreneurs would come on the show and how they would explain how they found somewhere in regular life a problem or a need and they've come up with some sort of novel solution to that problem. Apparently countries all over the world have similar shows with a similar premise. It's fun to watch people pitch interesting solutions to various difficult problems. And sometimes on the show, uh, the products or the people, they seem kind of silly. But the best part of the show, I think, is when someone comes in and they lays out, they out a very complicated problem. And they show how they've discovered a novel and a really elegant solution to that problem. One man, for example, he came onto the show because his mother kept on somehow downloading computer viruses, causing all kinds of problems, and asking him to come and fix them. And so he invented and programmed a USB stick that could uh, disable computer viruses, identify them, and remove them all automatically, and he started to sell it. And it can be extremely beautiful and satisfying when you're given the perfect, intricate solution to solve a complicated problem. And this afternoon, we'll be looking at something that's similar, but yet on a completely, radically, cosmically different scale. Not worth comparing to any other problem in our lives or any other solution the world has ever known to any problem that comes our way. Today we'll be looking at the incarnation, the coming down of the second person of the Trinity into our flesh. There we'll see something that becomes far too familiar, especially around Christmas time. But by far the most profound and beautiful and breathtaking and intricate solution that God himself gave to solve the most profoundly deep and dark problem of all time. The problem of human sin. The sin dwelling in our hearts and afflicting the world all around us. So we'll explore this topic in two parts. First, we'll look at the condition. And then secondly, we'll look at the cure. First of all, the condition. And it's quite fascinating to think that as Christians, we talk about sin all the time, don't we? We hear about it at least twice a week, uh, twice a week I hope, that we can say. And yet, I, often I, at least, completely fail to grasp what a deep and insidious and complex problem sin really is. For example, when is the last time you sinned? 
How would you answer that question? We confess we sin all the time. Can you think of when the last time you sinned is? Do you, do you really know? It can be surprisingly tough to answer that question. We can really struggle with recognizing and confessing our sins, can't we? Even though we confess that sin is a huge problem and that we are radically, absolutely sinful by nature. And it's important because even though most of us would never say it, it's easy for us to start to kind of think that we just have a small sin problem, not a very big sin problem. And that affects every aspect of our lives as that starts to affect our thinking. You can think of Jesus and Simon the Pharisee, a very famous story in the New Testament. Simon criticizes Jesus uh, and the sinful woman weeping at his feet. And Jesus rebukes Simon, saying, she is doing this, she's acting this way for a perfectly rational reason. It's because she loves me much. And then Jesus says, he who is forgiven little loves little, but he who was forgiven much loves much. And of course, Jesus doesn't mean for a second that Simon wasn't actually a great sinner, that he wasn't actually forgiven much. He meant Simon didn't know, he didn't feel, he didn't truly believe that he was a great sinner. And so much of our coldness and our lack of zeal and lack of love and devotion to Christ and our lack of desire and ability to live and to suffer and sweat for Jesus Christ who lived and suffered and sweated for us can be traced back to the fact that while we theoretically know we sin much, we know it's a big problem, practically we feel like we sin little. Like it's not that big of a problem in our day-to-day lives. And this is dangerous and deadly. You can think of someone who has aches and pains and symptoms that they notice, but they put off going to the doctor and so fail to identify a dreadful and destructive disease before it's too late. You and me, as fallen people, often we only see a few of our sins. And even when we see them, we're really great defense attorneys. We're great lawyers. We can really step up and appeal on our own behalf, can't we? We can excuse ourselves for all kinds of things that we do wrong. And as a result, we fail to see, or we just see a a few of the many profound symptoms of our great disease of sin. Uh, A great church father, Augustine, he's helpful here. In his book, Confessions, he he spends some time talking about a relatively small offense from when he was in his youth, uh, a teenager. And he tells the story like this. You have to picture it. One time, Augustine, he was hanging out with some friends, and they were out in their neighborhood at night. And for some reason, they decided to go to their neighbor's pear tree, full of ripe pears, and they started ripping them all off of the tree. He says they took an enormous number of pears, and then they had no idea what to do with them. They had more and nicer pears back at home. Not knowing what to do with them, they took them and threw them to some pigs. And to this seemingly small sin, Augustine attributes huge significance in his book, Confessions. And others have come in and they've critiqued Augustine here. They say that he's being too hard on himself. I found some people who said that this is an example of toxic Christian guilt. Just demonizing himself as a kid, just for having some fun, for just, boys will be boys, right? No big deal. But for Augustine, this was profound. Because he wondered to himself many years later when he was about 41, he wondered, why did he steal those pears? Why did he go and destroy them? Why did he ruin them? Why did he harm his neighbor in this way and for nothing? He didn't particularly like pears. He didn't need them. They didn't end up using them. It was only fun for him. The only reason that he had to do it, the only one he wanted to do it, 
but because it was destructive and immoral and wrong. And so Augustine saw this seemingly small sin as one symptom of a huge problem in his heart and in his life. It was just one of countless manifestations throughout his whole life of sins committed willingly, almost impulsively, naturally, just for the sake of sinning and rebelling and destroying and hurting. And Augustine rightly notes just how tragic this is compared to what we were created to be. For you and for me and for Augustine, what were we created for? We just read part of it together in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 tells us, quoting from Psalm 8, You, that is God, you have crowned him, that is humanity, that is you and me. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And so think for a moment of all creation, if you can. Think of the mountains and the seas and the stars. And yet the pinnacle of God's great creation is mankind. It's you and me. We were created in God's image and likeness. And we were put on the earth to rule it under God on God's behalf. God created us to be God-like rulers over the earth under him. Reflecting his own nature and glory by working creation and keeping it. By cultivating it and by protecting it. So think for a moment of this creation. How have you done and how have I done and how has humanity of a whole, as a whole done in our task of cultivating and protecting creation? We've utterly destroyed and cursed God's good creation, haven't we? We failed terribly in our task. That's what Augustine saw in his behavior. An innate desire to harm and tear down and destroy creation and harm his nature. The very opposite of what he was made for. The glory and splendor of God that we were created to live up to. This is just a small example, but this is true of every sin that we can commit. The small ones, like Augustine said. Every specific actual sin, though, is a symptom of a much deeper problem in humanity in our hearts. King David is the ultimate example, and some commentators make a connection between him and Augustine in this story. So King David was called also to rule in God's behalf in the Old Testament, wasn't he? He was called to rule Israel and to make himself and the nation a picture of God's nature once again in the fallen world. To cultivate and to protect God's people, so to speak. And yet King David fell spectacularly. David acted recklessly and selfishly. He had no regard for Bathsheba or for her husband or for his family or for God's nation. And when we hear that story, I think very often we have a natural inclination to try and play a lawyer, a defense attorney for King David too. We see this as an aberration. This was a one-time thing. King David was a man after God's own heart. We have an inclination to try and defend David. This was an exception. But what does David say when he reflects on his sin, his murder and adultery? What does he say? Reflecting on his abhorrent sins, King David doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say this was a mistake or this was out of character. Instead, what did he say? He says the very opposite. King David says that these huge, atrocious sins are symptoms of a much bigger sin problem in his heart. A symptom of what exists at the core of his identity. Why did King David sin like this? Well, he tells us uh, in Psalm 51. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, 
I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. King David doesn't say this was a one-time thing. This isn't the true David. He knows better. Augustine didn't say that was a one-time thing. He knows better now. He was just a boy. They trace this back and they see this is something deep. This is something profoundly connected to our core identity. They realize something we often forget. That these are individual manifestations of a lifelong problem. A deep corruption and pollution of sin. David traces this, these offenses back to his birth and to his conception. His problem traces back to when he was a single cell in his mother's womb. That's how much is a core part of his identity by nature. And this is the uniform testimony of Scripture about your and my condition. You and me and Augustine and David were conceived and born in sin. As Jeremiah says, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. As we're told in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Paul in the New Testament says, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dane Ortland puts it like this in his book, Deeper. He says, what is the human being's natural condition? On the one hand, we are resplendent with glory. The image of God drenches us in glory and renders us utterly unlike any other creature in the universe. But we are also ruined. The ancient rebellion of our Edenic parents, uh, grandparents flows down through every generation. It's tragic repercussions infecting every aspect of our existence. Our bodies start powering down from about age 30 on. Disease and natural calamities sweep away large numbers of us in unpredictable horrors. And most insidious of all, our minds and our hearts have been infected. We crave the forbidden. We celebrate others' misfortune. We hoard rather than give. Fallen humans are factories of filth. He explains as Christians, we're quick to admit that we're not perfect. We'll say that happily. But we fail to truly believe and confess we're not just going in the right direction with occasional missteps. We're running by, in the wrong direction by nature. If our lives were like the Pacific Ocean, evil would be the ocean, not the islands of our internal existence. The problem is that our sinful condition is so profound and deep. The Bible says it blinds us. It makes us callous, so we can't even see the problem. It's like we have a disease, one symptom of which is that we feel quite healthy. This is a serious problem in our souls from birth. With our spiritual condition, it's the same as with a physical symptom. If you're going to start treating and even defeating your physical disease, if you're going to take it seriously, first you need to know what the disease is and how serious it is. And Orland writes, I have never ever met a deep Christian who did not have a correspondingly deep sense of his or her own natural desolation. Think about that. I've never met a deep Christian who did not have a deep sense of her own or her own sinful nature. I once heard it explained like this. If for some strange reason you really wanted to feel ugly, what should you do? You should go and stand beside someone tremendously beautiful, shouldn't you? That'll make you feel ugly pretty quick. If you wanted to feel really ignorant, well then what you should do is go and stand next to someone incredibly smart and insightful, and it won't take too long. 
If you want it to feel really weak, well then go and stand next to somebody who is very strong. And brothers and sisters, if we are drawing near to Christ, and if we're loving the Messiah, if we're trusting him, listening to him and depending on him, if we're longing and striving to follow only in Christ's footsteps, and we're constantly falling short every single day, well then how can we keep on living thinking, I'm actually pretty good. I'm actually not that bad. Just a few small sins here and there. I'm on the right track. My sin's not that big of a problem. I'm not perfect, I fail, but my corruption isn't that deep. My condition isn't that tragic. The more and more we go and draw near to Jesus Christ, the more we consider his person and his work, his love and his nature and his grace, the more we'll sit and we sit and study at his feet, the more we'll start to cry out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We'll confess with the Apostle Paul, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It's by drawing near to Christ and meditating on his word that the Spirit really begins to work and we begin to comprehend the depth of the problem of our own sin. As Robert Murray McShane once said, And when you have learned all you can about your sin and filth, remember you have seen but a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. As we draw near to Christ, we'll better understand our desperate condition. And in that way, we'll also be able to better appreciate the absolutely breathtaking, profound, and perfect cure, the plan of salvation that is the incarnation, the solution to our condition in Jesus Christ, the cure. That's our second and our final point. As powerful as our sin problem is, and it is profoundly powerful, in Christ we have a far more powerful solution that can cleanse every spot, every stain of sin. We don't just have a helper from heaven, though Christ is a helper as well. We have a savior from heaven. As our catechism summarizes so beautifully, the eternal son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, he is the one who came down to save us from our sin. All of it. In a profound mystery, God knit the second person of the Trinity, a womb, or a body in Mary's womb. And uh, the word took on flesh. And as we read in Hebrews, he became like us, like his brothers in every respect, yet, as we confess, without sin. In this way, Jesus Christ could help. He could save. He became one of us, utterly like us, as Adam and Eve were like us when they plunged humanity into sin. And yet we confess that Christ, in a sense, was unlike us, even from his conception. Before he took on flesh in his divine nature, he was already eternal. And even in his conception, he was distinct from us. He wasn't conceived and born in sin. Rather, we confess, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He came into the world, and already then, he came as the one who could save us. He's the only one of the billions born who came without stain or spot from sin, from his very conception. Praise God. The Savior is here. The one who can wash us clean from our problem of sin that is so much deeper than we ever even reflect on, we ever even realize. He was born of a woman, and as Hebrews said, 
He partook of our flesh and blood so he might help the sons of Abraham. As the Catechism says, he himself was the true seed of David, true man, true God, truly righteous. I always appreciated the analogy I learned in seminary of how it was that mankind was lost in Adam and how God's elect are saved in Christ Jesus because it always it was hard to wrap my mind around how we were represented by, Christ, uh, by Adam and now we're represented by Christ. And we went over a number of analogies in seminary, but one that always stuck with me was the picture of a soccer game. Imagine a soccer game is going on and it comes to the very end and you get two penalty kicks. And then one person goes, uh, goes ahead as the representative for the entire team. And they go, and hopefully they're your best shooter. They take their shot. If they score, all of you win just as much as that person who shot. If they miss, all of you lose just as badly as they missed. And so there we have an imperfect, but a bit of a picture of humanity falling and failing all together, all one, and Adam and Eve. There we have a beautiful picture of our salvation in Christ because in him, by faith, we're no longer in Adam. We are in Christ Jesus. He is the Savior that we need, true man, so he can represent us and pay for us, step up on our behalf and grant us the victory. He is truly qualified to cleanse us from all of our sins, our actual sins as well as our original sins, and bring us back to God, our original sin, rather. He took on our flesh and blood, and he shared in our suffering and temptation. He he tasted, that means he deeply experienced death, bringing many sons to glory, as we read in Hebrews 2. Is the author and the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And so we read the wonderful words in Hebrews. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And later the author of Hebrews tells us also, he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And it's important to reflect on that word, sympathize. It's important to realize it doesn't just mean some kind of a, a sympathy card. That's not what Christ gives us, some sort of a shallow feeling of pity without real deep understanding. To sympathize there, it literally means to suffer with somebody, to share in their feelings. So think about that for a moment and just be uh, amazed by it. That the second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh, the one who is and remains true and eternal God. In your weakness, in your temptation, He sympathizes with you. He suffers with you. Not just some pity. He understands. How? Well, the author of Hebrews explains. Because he's one of us. He came down in the flesh. He was tempted. He faced the weakness of life, the life of humanity. He doesn't just imagine or theoretically kind of get how you feel. He sympathizes with his people. He understands completely and resonates with how you feel. So whatever suffering or weakness or struggle you're dealing with or or might come your way, just try and think for a second to find one that Christ can't relate to. Because Christ came down and experienced our suffering and weakness, what we experience and worse. And so when we're tempted, we can remember the devil tempted uh, Christ worse and longer and harder and he endured When we're lonely, we can think Jesus Christ was far lonelier. When when we're mocked, we can think he's been mocked worse. When we're scared, we can think Christ has been scared, hasn't he? When we're betrayed, we can think Christ was betrayed on our behalf. 
When we're rejected, he was rejected too. When we're disturbed and angry and upset with the sin around us and the world, the injustice and suffering all around us, Jesus Christ was disturbed and upset and angry more than we have ever been. When we're suffering, approaching death's door, Jesus Christ has been there. He suffered approaching death's door. Death, not just of body, but the second death, the death of soul as well. Jesus Christ, he sympathizes in our pain. What a savior that we have. A savior because he can sympathize, but not just because he can sympathize. Because he can sympathize and he can save. Jesus Christ has been through this suffering and these experiences, and he did it without spot or stain and sin. When we are going through suffering, when we're going through a trial or a challenge, it's wonderful to find someone else who's been through something similar. Now, they've experienced it themselves. You can find some comfort in that. But what you really want to find is someone who's been there, experienced it, and come through the other side victorious. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. He can sympathize, and he can save. We can find our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who willingly took on our weakness, took our temptation and pain, willingly took on our punishment, not just physically, but spiritually. The death and abandonment that our sinful condition deserved. And he came out the other side victorious on our behalf. As our text says in verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That was our condition, lifelong slavery. He was victorious up to and beyond death. And what we're studying today is he was victorious back to his birth and even before his birth, back to his conception. And when we, like Augustine, dwell on the sins of our past, the the sins of our youth, things that we're ashamed of, even more ashamed of than just stealing some pears, we can realize that we have a Savior eminently qualified to pay and cover over those sins. When, like Augustine and David, we realize even our worst sins are just a small symptom of our far deeper problem in corruption. We can look to Jesus Christ and see the one who can deliver us from all of our sins, not just the symptom, not just the actual sins, but from our very sinful condition, because he was conceived and born like us, true man, yet without sin. As J.C. Ryle once said, there is a remedy revealed for man's need, as wide and broad and deep as man's disease. We need not be afraid to look at sin anymore and study its nature, its origin, its power, its extent, and its vileness. If only then we turn and look at the almighty medicine provided for us in the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Though sin has truly abounded, grace has abounded all the more. Praise God. As our catechism so beautifully puts it, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ. Why should you care? Why does the birth of this Savior matter to you? Well, our catechism tells us, he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. In Jesus Christ, our sin is covered, and we appear before the Father, innocent and perfectly holy from conception till the end. Praise God. 
Not just covering individual sins, that's what we usually think about, but the pollution that led to them. Any sin or pollution which remains in you from the time you were a single cell is perfectly covered by Jesus Christ. In him you're innocent and perfectly holy because he was innocent and perfectly holy. As Hebrews 2 tells us, we don't yet see creation cleansed and glorious and subject to mankind as it was created to be. But we do see something now. We read that in verse 9. We see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death so that he might taste death for everyone. In this way, he can bring many sons and daughters to glory. So brothers and sisters, look to Jesus Christ, his conception and birth. And as you draw near to him, you will learn more about our sinful condition, which we too often underestimate. But there we'll find also our cure. God's most profound and elegant solution to ours and our world's most profound problem of sin. Amen.